Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Get your brand on board with our podcast with a sponsorship campaign and get into the earphones of over 100,000 highly engaged parents within our show and across Acast's other famous podcasts. We'll even come up with the creative for you. Get in touch via producerpaul.co.uk and we'll have a chat about how it works. Hello again and thanks for tuning in to Making Womb the podcast, where Holly and I unpack the things that impact how we birth and parent, bringing you ideas and knowledge that you may not have considered before. Stuff that's not often discussed elsewhere, but that will be impacting on you, perhaps without you realising it. Today we're talking to Rini Bozier, who's a practising private midwife and homeopath, and Nancy Nunn, a specialist paediatric osteopath and lecturer. Both Rini and Nancy approach wellness holistically, treating individuals as a whole and leaning into intuitive clinical expertise developed through their vast experience of women and babies. They're going to help us understand why we should be listening to our bodies, a phrase that's banded around quite a lot in relation to wellness. But what exactly does that mean? How do we do that? Why should we? First of all, though, what's been going on in your world, Illy? Um, not much, actually. I mean, you know, I wouldn't be British if I didn't talk about the weather and how much <laughs> bloody joy it's brought me. Um, honestly, sunshine, vitamin D, it just feels good. Um so I've had lots of barbecues in the garden. Ihsan has worn all her lovely summer clothes and has, all, well, actually not even clothes because she's now potty trained. So she's just been <laughs> naked. Um, less washing. Less washing. Um, which is just brilliant. And so actually this week I'm feeling pretty darn good. How are you? Same. I, I agree completely. Isn't it amazing what a shift a bit of good weather does for our souls and our minds. Um, yeah, we've had half term, so Oscar's been off school, which has been nice. I kind of like half term. I feel like I need those resets where I don't have to do the school run. <laughs> it's a, it's nice to have a breather from routine. So I'm feeling good too. Good. So let's get chatting to Rini and Nancy. I hope you all enjoy. 
For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. A podcast from producerpaul.co.uk. So now it is time to say hello to our guests. Uh, we are joined by Rini and Nancy, who we've introduced to you already. But shall we let them introduce themselves and hear what they have to say? So, Rini, who are you? <laughs> what do you do? I am a private midwife. Um, been a private midwife for 16 years now and a homeopath, a registered homeopath. So I started doing that because I just found it really helped with um, midwifery, but it's gone a bit wider than that now. So, um, yeah, and lots and lots of courses. So, mm. yeah, just love doing anything about birth. Yeah, it would be fair to say you have your client base is quite a big chunk of like women in childbearing years, yes. I guess, and beyond. Yes, and the dads of the baby yeah. so yeah yes. it's sort of yeah it it's yes most of my clients I would say have come from my base that I've already got so and then it gets wider from there yeah and Nancy what about you um I'm a practicing osteopath uh I have a special interest in pediatrics so after qualifying I decided that actually I quite like treating children but I didn't really know enough about them so I did a postgraduate paediatric diploma and since then have um, done quite a lot of training and professional development in paediatrics. I also teach paediatrics so I no longer teach undergraduates, I teach postgraduate osteopaths who are interested in specialising in paediatrics. I teach in the UK and I also, well (laughs) pre-pandemic, did quite a bit of travelling to teach (laughs) Um, and currently this week we'll be teaching on Zoom in Milan because can't travel there. Well, it'll be sunny, so it might be like being in Milan. Maybe. <laughs> I just think sitting in this room is not quite the same as yeah. a classroom <laughs> full of interesting osteopaths to teach. So today's episode is all about listening to the body. And, you know, what does that mean? Why it's important in the care we give to women, especially in pregnancy, um, in birth and beyond that. Um your practices are more than just kind of fact-based. You're not just following protocol. You're working intuitively with your clients um, in more of a long-term capacity, perhaps. Do you feel like that helps you to help them to listen to what their bodies are telling them? Absolutely. Um, I What I really like about the way that I work is that you build up a relationship. So you know what somebody is like normally, um, and you build up a trust, and so you you find what that person is like, um, what the, what their likes and dislikes are. Um, are they somebody who moans about the slightest little thing about their fingernail was broken, or could they be dragging along a broken leg and not not moaning about it? So 
you really know that person when they're in labour. And um, I think I, you just feel that you know that person um, and they know you as well. So they trust you. So if you're, they can allow their bodies to do the work right mm-hmm. thinking am i am i doing this right am i doing that right it's like you do whatever you need to do or needing to be told what to do absolutely yeah and we, we would have had lots of discussions so actually when they're in labor they don't need to talk at all you know we we don't even really have any conversations because they're we know them and mm. it's just small you know i'm just kind of listening to the baby and it's like yeah there's no right I'm doing this because of this and because of that and we're doing it mm. and yeah it just isn't because we've done all that you've talked a lot about that Ellie, haven't you in your in your kind of clinical practice yeah I mean I think it's I think that's been very normalized that like explaining things in the birth room um from essentially a stranger you know oh, you just, it's whoever you get, the luck of the draw type thing. And hopefully she's nice. And hopefully you get on with them. And then um, lots of discussions being had in very sort of high stress or vulnerable moments. But we know that, you know, the cortisol rises, adrenaline rises, and it doesn't, it's not conducive to actually birthing. Um, and, you know, Holly and I speak about the importance of antenatal education and 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 going into birth with, an understanding of things so you can avoid all of that. Um, but so I think it's really nice to be able to facilitate continuity of care to the degree where you can not have to have those conversations where the trust is just there and someone knows that they can sort of be their authentic selves um, in in a very sort of transformational and transitional time knowing that they're supported and understood i suppose um mm. yeah i think that must just be a really sort of special thing that unfortunately we aren't all allowed <laughs> um but 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 mm. would be great to to have yeah because it's funny isn't it because sometimes you hear women saying oh well when i was in labor the midwife said just to listen to my body and you hear women saying but what does that mean because we don't have a culture that facilitates that or teaches us how to do that or lets us do that. We don't actually do it. Like it's not normal practice. So it feels so foreign mm. when someone's like, listen to your no. body. And you're like, but huh? Like I've yeah. never done that. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, and, ex- and they want it to just be explained. Everything is, you know, we our culture is so much about spoon feeding that we want everything to be explained to us by people who are in positions of power and I say that in inverted commas so the doctor told me the midwife told me and you know you it's like they tell me how to do it but that's one thing that we can't tell you to do is how to listen to your body Mm. that is something that you need to practice you know you need to normalize and then really kind of start doing that and yeah exactly Mm. and not telling you how to do it but supporting you to explore that for yourself um all the people that do that sort of like you know well, she, I suppose Nancy you'd have yeah quite a bit to say on that mm, I mean I as an osteopath one of the when, when I'm teaching uh, the 
the techniques that I use to other osteopaths, I talk about listening a lot because that's that's what we do with our hands. So when I put my hands on someone, often um, if someone's not seen me work before, it looks a bit kind of magical or mystical because it looks like I'm not actually doing anything. What I'm really doing with my hands is 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 listening to what's happening. And I think one of the roles that, that I have with patients is to verbalise some of the things that I feel to give someone the space to maybe understand a little bit more about why they're feeling the way they do. So I think when someone's lying down on my treatment table and I've got my hands on um, and I feel something that feels particularly tight, they may be aware that something's uncomfortable, but I might be able to say, you know what, I find this quite interesting because this part of you is particularly tight. And last time I felt this, it felt um, for, you know, for a different patient, it felt like it related to an injury that they had had when they fell onto the base of their spine. And then you are, you explain that to somebody and and then they make connections about how they feel and what that might relate to. And that for me is a step towards the issue resolving or giving someone the capacity to resolve that issue, not me, me resolving it for them, but them understanding how their body can resolve that. Yeah, it's always interesting. Whenever I have treatments with you, Nancy, what always interests me is that you, you often say, I feel like your body wants to do this. Or you talk about the body being kind of in the mood mm. for the work or not. Like sometimes you say your body really mm. doesn't want to do this. And I find that so interesting because normally it will correlate to how I'm feeling. Mm. Or like if I'm feeling like sluggish and I can't be bothered to change or to, do, to be proactive, that's normally what you can feel. So I feel like you're almost the voice, like linking that feeling to the intuition. Mm. And I wonder if, do you feel that's more prevalent in children or adults? Do you feel like we unlearn it? I, yeah, I definitely agree with that. I, th I think children are quite instinctive and they act on, in the moment, on how they feel. And, you know, you don't only have to look at how adults and children respond differently to illness. You know, when we're sick, what do we do? We just like try to keep going we try to still carry on um children when they're sick they mm. they'll lie down on the sofa and refuse to run around or they don't want to Flop. eat anything and, and we think oh well maybe i should just eat a big meal even though i don't feel very well i i think i i should do that because my brain's telling me i should do that without really listening to our body so i think i think children do instinctively mm. follow how they feel they follow their physiology and things happen to us through life that make us decide not to or maybe teach us patterns of behavior yeah, and so as an with some of my adult patients, there is quite a bit of unlearning that I think is useful in that area. Do you feel like change is easier in children then because they're more there's less in the way? Yes, but also from they've had less life, so there's less there's less trauma, there's less things. Yeah. So I think when 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 I treat a body, the body tells the story of what's happened up to that point. Um, so by the time you meet an adult everything's uh, their body's telling the whole story from you know the difficult birth that they might have had all the way up until you know the injury they had as a teenager and mm. the tricky time they had in their 20s to the car accident they had five years later and so when you meet a child from from the point of view of 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 resolving trauma and, and injury in the body whether that's a physical injury or a injury that you might relate to more to their emotions it, they've had it for less time. There's less layers of, of things to, to feel. So there's less barriers to healing for children. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And there's less, I think there's just less of, <clears throat> less conscious thinking. A lot of the time, you know, when we, mm. like adults can talk themselves out of doing things and they can dismiss 
uh, signs and symptoms and and you know they kind of I think similar to what you were saying, Holly, you know, you say, oh, they're just being irrational. Like, I'm just being irrational. I'm just whatever. But children don't do that. Mm. <laughs> like, mm. I am being irrational, but irrational is normal. <laughs> I am always irrational. Yeah. Like, you know, I don't... Until they're told until it's they're not, Until they're told right? it's not. Exactly. And we talk about this when we talk about birth. Like, the way that it is just continuous, like, information being fed to you about how you should feel, what you should do, similarly to going into parenting, what's normal, mm. what's not, what's expected, what's right, what's wrong, what's, you know, socially acceptable. And that obviously varies amongst different communities and cultures and stuff, but you you, you can see where we stop listening to instinct, intuition and, you know, our bodies because there's just so much noise yeah. from- it gets drowned out, doesn't early. it? Exactly. Whereas children, it's like I'm talking, I'm I'm talking, yeah. I'm talking, I'm talking. It's like me, me. I'm the I'm the most important person in my world. Like hear me. Um, so mm. I read something the other day that said when a child is kind of upset, you know, we're so quick to say, "Come on, you're okay," and actually you're rushing th- them through an important feeling because you need to get away from it. And so you see how those blocks come in so early on. And how we we really do, we we are kind of compliant mm. in getting away from how we feel, and then modelling that for our children. and And it takes a lot of proactive thought to not do that because often it's just how we've been parented or or what we've seen in the adult world, isn't it? So we 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 kind of imitate it without thinking about the effects it might have. But inevitably, it does have a huge effect. In homeopathy, we can. People are like onions, you know. They've they've just got layer upon layer upon layer, and so treating somebody, you're you're not treating what they've got now. You've got to go back mm. and find out what happened. And you could say that everything is emotional other than uh, obviously a car accident or something like that but when you everything yeah. is a block and emotional and it's covered up and then you've mm-hmm. got another layer and you've got to undo that layer and then you just keep finding so this person that you started treating by the the time that you've got to the end you know you've you've gone all the way back and you found all these different things that they didn't even know was a problem yeah um, it's been disguised, I guess. Yes, yeah, But that takes time, doesn't it? Yeah. And it takes such an investment of your kind of emotional capacity to really sit and go back through things that have happened to you, which our kind of clinical care structures just cannot facilitate. No. They just can't. You know, they're too big. They're too, um, you know, they're just not run in a way that could facilitate that. So it's not normalized i think as well like we are in a culture of treating a symptom Mm -hmm. you know we continuously treat symptoms and it's like okay what if we didn't actually do that like we got to the root we didn't wait for things to be seen and we believed in like Mm. sort of like an unseen thing like it's like i don't need to see it like right there i don't need for it to present itself yeah to know that it is an issue you know, as in, and because we, we're so much like things need to be tangible. It's like, oh right, yeah. so tell me about your symptoms. And it's like, and and because 
we, when we hear about symptoms, we can even, when someone asks us to tell them about their symptoms, which is what I've really enjoyed about being treated by both osteopaths and homeopaths, is that it's not really asking me about an immediate symptom from this. Because I could be like, oh, my head hurts or whatever. And, and it's like, nah, that's not it. But if I go to the GP and I'm like, yeah, I don't know, I've been to the GP and it's nothing against GPs, but I've been to a GP, I've been like, oh, I've got I've got this rash that has shown up on my hand and blah, 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 blah. And they've typed into Google skin rash and gone, oh, here's a cream. And I'm like, mm. I know that this is a stress response. Yeah, a manifestation yeah. of something I else. know that this is, this is an accumulation of things and my body is going, sister, sort this out you know then what we do is we put the cream on which forces it inwards and it'll come somewhere somewhere else else. yeah exactly and this is you know in in my work in like birth debriefs and stuff i'm always telling people like they're like i'm just trying to forget it and i'm like well it's gonna come out like it Mm. will come out it will come out in how you parent it will come out in how you have relationships it may come out in illness it may come out in lots of different ways but it doesn't just go away like nothing just goes mm. away when we put band-aids on them and band-aids whether it's creams or pills or whatever they don't go away they just come in in you know they come out in lots and lots of different ways so yeah i have clients and they will say um oh really treated me for ibs for instance so can i have the same pills as she had and it's just that, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, 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 no. We need to Your go IBS back. Your IBS isn't Why? her IBS. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, and, but if you were going through the normal allopathic route, just going to the GP, then yes, you'd get the same tablets. As mm-hmm. It's very confusing for the of average person, it is. isn't it? Because it's, you know, you've been brought up in this system for your whole life and they, you know, the idea is that this system will look after you and keep you healthy and keep you well. And then some at some point you feel that that isn't mm. the case. So you look elsewhere and you see a totally different way, but you're trying to live in a, in a way that's compatible with the system mm. you're in, mm. which can be very disorientating and conflicting yeah. at times. It takes a real How submission, you, I think. Yeah. Well, yeah, it does. And real, you kind of have to sit mm. with the uncomfortable feelings yeah. it brings up. Yeah. Like, am I doing something wrong? Am I neglecting something by not doing this thing that everyone else is doing? It's it's a real point of conflict for a lot of people, I think. And so I think a lot of us don't go near it because it feels too big. I think as well, like, particularly when it comes to our children, we feel so like, you know, that kind of fear of accountability of like, if I do the wrong thing, what will happen? Or like, if I don't do anything or don't follow the advice from, I don't know, for example, when Isan had colic, colic, um, and I was like, I just don't know about this. <laughs> I don't feel like, you know, I called the midwife and she was like, oh yeah, she's crying a lot. Oh, I've just given you a prescription for Gaviscon. And I was like, whoa, 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 what are you doing here? And that again takes a real kind of like, so that's not to say that everyone rejects Gaviscon, that's to say, I didn't really believe that that was necessarily the root cause. And I didn't want to put something into my baby that I felt wouldn't necessarily deal with what was going on. And mm-hmm. I took her to an osteopath and people were like, an osteopath? <laughs> an oste- like, an osteopath? Like, what's that going to do? Just take the Gaviscon. <laughs> and it's like going against everything that people are like, mm. why would you have her crying and just take her to an osteopath rather than, mm. and it's so interesting because she was also on a, on a, on a homeopathic 
uh, remedy. And I'd gone to the homeopath, we had this whole session with her and then someone went, well, how are you gonna give her the remedy? <laughs> and I was like, well, how do you give Gaviscon? <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, it's so interesting to me that they're like, yeah. whoa, you're going to give her homeopathy. It's like, whoa, well, you're going to give her like Infocol. Like, you know. But I think for a lot of people, they're just relieved to have a quick yeah, of solution. Course, of course. Because our, our, the kind of care we have is so solution focused, fixing things, getting rid of symptoms quickly. It's like, oh, great, Gaviscon, brilliant. Now everything's going to be mm. fine. And we just want to move through obstacles as quickly as possible yeah. rather than using I, them as kind of learning opportunities i was gonna say when i did my training a very experienced osteopath said to me once that symptoms are just the excuse to get someone in your treatment room and once they're there then you listen to mm. their body and you find out what they need mm. um so it might be like, similar to it to what rini has yeah. been saying that they may come in with a symptom but that might not be the thing that ultimately i treat yeah i might be interested in so and yeah. you know using the example of, of, of the colicky baby i treat a lot of babies who are unsettled and some of them it might relate to their gut and you might be able to to use the word colic attachment but many of them even though the parent will come in saying well i think they've got a really uncomfortable tummy i find that something else about their body's uncomfortable or actually their body's been so um stressed by the process of birth and they've not been able to calm down from that and actually their problem is not any area that's uncomfortable. Their problem is actually they just need to calm down and they need to work out how to to change to you know effectively mm. turn down the thermostat on their nervous system and, and calm everything down. Wow! And then the small like a climate. Yeah, and then the small things in their body that they're noticing and basically freaking out about become things that are not an issue anymore. So I, so not not changing the kind of physical thing, but changing the way their body's reacting to it because of their stress levels. Mm. And that's interesting as well, because when we talk about traumatic birth, we often focus on the birthing person's tangible physical experience. Mm. And we often don't think about the baby's experience of birth. Mm. All that matters for the baby is that they're mm. healthy in here. That's our narrative, right? Mm. And often, you know, we don't take into account, well, how was mum feeling throughout her pregnancy? Mm. What was the start of labour like? What was labour like? You know, how did the baby find that experience yeah and we almost just don't mm. even go there we don't even look at that i mean it's, it's, it's like they're not telling they're telling us they're fine the baby's sleeping okay yeah baby yeah, they've feeding just got okay. or you know that's <laughs> those are the questions and and i think you know when i do debriefs i'm like to people the first question i ever ask them is like how was the road to conception like it's so dismissed it's so dismissed mm. as like well now you're pregnant so that's fine or, you know, we don't look at previous trauma to the body. Let's say if you've had miscarriages or terminations for whatever reason, we don't look at any of that. We don't look at the stress that may have been caused by it, the anxiety that may then come with carrying a baby and all of these things. And it's like, it's just all dismissed. Oh, your birth trauma was by your birth. And when you get into those conversations, it comes up later and they, they'll say things like, I had a really rocky relationship with my mum throughout my pregnancy. And you go, oh, mm. really? Mm. So then it's like, well, this is bigger than just because the birth went wrong or whatever. And yeah, also everything gets compartmentalized. It does. But also we've got to look at then how does this affect us? Relationship with our mum then affect our relationship with our children and how we feel about that. And blah, blah, blah. Can I just add a bit about that? You saying that I've had women in labor who their labor just won't carry on. Mm -hmm. And... I'm a bit cruel because I end up making them cry. 
but <laughs> it's because they're holding something that somebody said something to them at some time in their life you know you're going to be a horrible mum or you're going to be really rubbish at this you wait until you're a mum yeah. things like that and they hold that and they can't let go and then when they've actually said it then they continue to labour and they have a baby. It's mm. so interesting that you say that. So that's just what's holding yeah, it on. It is, and I think we... Invisible. We can do that to people yeah. a lot, like, as in without knowing it, mm. those comments that are made, the language that's used, it's like we don't realise that. And, and yeah. you know, Holly, you know, all the stuff about the subconscious and how we just, we, 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 sit, we hold it. I remember the midwife mm. saying to me in my labour, she was like, you could have done it, but, you know, you're just, you're just too tired. And I remember that that moment was my moment of like resignation. Like, and I, I remember it really, really clearly just being like, well, sod this. I'm clearly not able to do it. Whatever. Give up. I'm done. Mm. And as soon as I got to the hospital, I was like, yeah, give me pethidine, do what you want. It was now just like a process of getting her out because I knew that they were going to like say, oh, let's have a cesarean section the moment that they got me in the hospital. Oh, you haven't progressed mm. within this amount of time. Da, da, da. But I'd resigned. And I held on to that and there was no one that was capable enough to bring me out of that because we don't recognize it as perhaps being an issue. So she said it very fly away like this, not realizing the cause of it and then not wanting to reinforce the fact that actually that's not true. You aren't too tired mm -hmm. to, to continue. You have this, it was none of that. And I think it's about us as practitioners as well, really looking within and being like, what are the real powers of what we say and what we do? And then as fellow mothers and, and women and people, how we can just watch what we say, watch what we do for like, all the time. I had a lady um, years ago and she was a feedback lady. So a lady having a normal birth, or vaginal birth after a cesarean and she she had the baby in the pool absolutely beautiful birth and she was holding the baby and she started to cry and it's like you know oh, you know you're really happy and she went I'm not a failure am I and so no oh. so she oh when when she'd oh. had her first one they just said to her, oh, you can't do this. We're going to take you in and give you a cesarean. And she had held that for four years mm. that she was a failure. Wow. And so it wasn't, her first words weren't, oh, you know, wow, anything. It was like, I'm not a failure, am I? Yeah, that was her resolution. Yeah. But how but sad is that? Yeah, yeah. If she'd yeah. never had another but baby, if she hadn't had us as her midwives. Mm. Yeah, and how would that, if if, she, if that hadn't have come out in having the birth that that she needed, how else would that have then manifested? Yeah. yeah. Because, you know, I think what we're all on the same page with is that the way we feel has the potential to manifest physically. Um. With your work, Nancy, do you do people do many people come to you with from an emotional perspective rather than a physical one, or do they nearly always present with a physical kind of, kind of ailment or I don't know, you know, presentation? Um, definitely not always physical. I think um, mm. 
when you've been an osteopath for a while and people learn about what you do, they tend to send you people who they know need you. Um, mm. And so early on, when you start out as an osteopath, you often just treat pain-related presentations, so back pain, neck pain, headaches, knee pain. Um, but osteopathy is much broader than that because our physical bodies, for me, the physical body is, is a handle on, on the whole person. It's not. It's not like a separate. I don't mm. separate the physical body from from the emotional body. Yeah. Um, I mean, in the world of pediatrics, one of the areas that I have a particular specialism in is children with emotional behaviour problems. So, one of my first teaching jobs, actually, I worked for the British School of Osteopathy, working with undergraduates, and we had a clinic in a school for children with severe social emotional behaviour problems. And that headmaster of the school years before had basically knocked on the door of the osteopathy school and said, I think you do something that might help the children that are in our school. And I don't quite know what you do, but can you come along and, and help us? And so we were working purely with children who didn't have any physical symptoms, but we were working with their physical body to help them to cope with the world around them, help them to cope with their environment, help them to behave differently in the environment that, that they were living in. Um, so that, so, so for me, treating what you might call non-physical presentations or symptoms is very much a, a big part of what I do. Um, mm. It's interesting for me as a as a black woman to say things like seeing an osteopath, which is very much seen as like a white thing, like like something that was just outside of our like you don't you don't you can't afford that. Like it wasn't something mm. that we saw, you know as being full, even now, like if I say to people, I go and see an osteopath and they're like, how much is that? Mm. And I'm like, oh, well, I don't know. Like it's like, I don't know, 40 quid a session or whatever we pay. And um, and they're like, whoa, <laughs> whoa. And I, 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 I look at these things and I think, gosh, there are all of these barriers that many people don't understand that, that are there when it comes to private support, yeah. when it comes to, you know, birth and for our children. And it's not as simple as like not, not wanting to go and get it. It's about not seeing it as something that is accessible for you mm -hmm. or, and, and, and culturally acceptable for you. And I think I was talking to my mum about this, who had seven children and who never saw that, like, you know, we, ne we never saw osteopaths and things like that. Um, and we, when we said to her the first time that we were taking the kids, she was like, an osteopath? Now, she says all the time, like they make a noise. She's like, do they need to go see the osteopath? <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, well, oh, uh, are the who? <laughs> but... I do wonder about like when we when we look at accessibility for these things yeah. and like yeah. really I would I think there are so many black and brown women that could benefit from private midwifery Absolutely. support real continuity of care and someone who is just in tune with them who doesn't have to be black but who just gets it and but then it's like there's like a a silent like you're not welcome here or this isn't for you and I I do think even when I'm speaking to other black people about these things they're like Hmm? Like I said, I go independent next time I have a baby. They're like, independent? You got money for that. Mm. What do you mean? That's white. That's a white thing. Mm. And I just, I just, you know, I don't even know what my question is, but it's sort of just like, it's, a, it's just more of an observation mm. that actually, yeah. culturally, are we even aware of the barriers to our own healing? Mm. Do you think it is cultural though? Because, I mean, I come across a lot of people, white people who... It's like, well, why would you pay for it when it's free? 
You know, you can yeah, get it I free on the NHS. Why would you pay for it? So in some ways, it's cultural, as in like country cultural. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, like we don't prioritise our yeah. health in, in that way because we've been given the free um, uh, NHS. But then I think as well, there's that added layer of mm. blackness. Mm. Um, and it's and that's interesting as well, because in sort of indigenous native communities, it's super normal. Exactly. Like it's, that's that's it's what I was thinking. Norm. You know, you would mm. have those traditional people who would be doing the hands-on, who would be the herbalists, who would know mm-hmm. the woman, mm. who would be doing all of the things that we are doing. Like community care. Totally. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. and I think that has been, it, it, particularly in this country, it's just been broken down. Mm. It's like this kind of, you know... Disjointed. For lots of different reasons. It's very disjointed, exactly. The care's disjointed. Obviously, then we have sort of like the systemic racism within the medical field, um, but also Mm. our desire to fit in and to follow the status quo and to be acceptable and to be palatable. Like, as a black person going to see someone, it's like, oh, yeah, your auntie said such and such, whatever. But as a white person who's going to see an osteopath, it's like, well, of course, darling. <laughs> yeah, just take her to your local osteopath. You know, it's it's kind of like it's it's acceptable within those communities because it's a science. It's not so challenged. Well, it's not so challenged, but also it's like sort of like um, it looks like wealth. It looks like wealth. It mm. looks like, you know, this access to this special, special care. Whereas in black and indigenous communities, it's like... <laughs> You know what? Like, it's not seen as mm. that. I just, I find it... Like an extravagance. Yeah, exactly. And I, I find it, I just find it really quite interesting. And actually navigating that as a black woman and even trying to suggest to people to go and do that and they put those those barriers yeah. are there, like, no, 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 no. That's not, that's really. not for me. That's not something. Mm. It's one thing that's always bothered me about osteopathy is that it does sit in the private, in the private field. Mm. Um, and we have, for various reasons, always been outside of of the medical system i mean there are other countries that integrate osteopathy much more into the medical system um so it why isn't it done here money probably money and a lot of osteopathy is about as well as fixing the acute it's about preventative medicine and the nhs just doesn't doesn't have that the nhs is Mm. you know it doesn't have enough money and i don't think you could pour enough money into it for for it to function it really even though it would probably save Mm. Money. But when you're short of money, Long you firefight, you fix the things that you really yeah. have to yeah. to stop it from. And that's the nail on the head, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And so, so for me, it's always I've always kind of wished I I I lived in a country where osteopathy was much more more integrated into the mainstream. But there there is there are low cost os- opportunities for osteopathy available. So for ever since I qualified, I've worked for uh, a charity called the Osteopathic Centre for Children. And they have always offered osteopathy to anyone, regardless of the parent's ability to pay. Um, mm. But it's hard for people to find out about places like that. And and that's the thing. And isn't for it? them, they don't have an endless pot of money, so they do need donations. And it's a uh, yeah because there's no public funding available for osteopathy, and particularly osteopathy around women's health and paediatrics. Um, it it. Obviously, Obviously. Yeah. I mean, God forbid we help women. Yeah. I mean, there are a few osteopaths that work in the NHS, but they mostly work in musculoskeletal medicine with pain syndrome. Mm. That's something that needs immediately fixing. Yeah. 
and something that you can tangibly research. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And quantify yeah. the yeah. success Which of. is often the barrier to yeah. the work that, that I do, the work that, that Rini does to, to offer it to a wider community, free at the point mm. of, of delivery. Mm. But even without the... What can I say? Even without the homeopathy or the private midwifery or the osteopathy, we know that continuity of carer, whoever it is, works. So whether that's midwives in the NHS, and we know that, and it was meant to be, and of course it was all thrown out last year, but um, I mean, where it used to be that you'd have a GP that knew you. Mm. And now, either I'll say to women when I'm doing their booking, you know, who's your GP? They haven't got a GP. Yeah. So there is no one who that is available. Has knows nobody you. knows you exactly. <laughs> yeah. And it's, yeah. it's so just, right. I don't think I know anyone with a GP. Yeah. Like a named GP that they know. Yeah. And you just, you know, it's it's just. So it's almost like you're, you're lost. Yeah. You're floating. And we're constantly treating symptoms rather than people. Yeah. You know, when. Yeah. But this is why we end up with that kind of, you know, that, um, what is it called? Like a series of interventions that you can see happen. It's pattern mm. that happens over and over and over again with so many different mm. people. And you're just like, why are you all going in with different things, different presentations, having these same interventions that lead to the same intervention, lead to the same intervention and the same outcome? Because mm. it's tick boxes, because tick they're boxes, seeing exactly. so many different people that all those different people would be saying, oh, for that, I would give you this, and for that, mm. I would give you that. Mm. So then you have to have a tick box, right? If someone comes in with this, this is what we give them, and everybody does the same. Yeah. And it, but people mm. are not the same. No. But it yeah. really takes time to get to know people it does and that's mm. the luxury that you yes. have in in private medicine is that you yes. can you can yes. take take time i mean i yeah I mean, what do gps get six and a half seven minutes mm. and i've seen i've seen Not patients it, go to it? a gp and been told well you've come in with two problems but i've only got time for one of them so you have to book an appointment for yeah. the other problem yeah yeah even though they might be linked yeah. and and for me <laughs> i would really struggle to work in that environment i mean i GPs yeah, have a yeah. really tough job. I don't, I don't know how you do that. Yeah. When I see a patient. And that's the thing, isn't it? It's, it's not villainizing GPs or midwives who are working in a system that just doesn't yeah. facilitate them working in an intuitive or person-centered yeah. way because it's just not possible. Mm. Yeah. It's almost like a, a, we need a complete revolution in our healthcare system for anyone to be looked mm. after properly yeah, and i think as well like you know we and not only our healthcare system, but our education system yeah. like from Everything. from very <laughs> very early and with like how we parent and with our children it's like really kind of leaning into their intuition and and actually listening like genuinely listening like you said at the beginning holly that not it's okay you're okay it's like well what's actually mm. wrong and teaching them to do that for themselves and then to seek the support that will allow that you know if i think back to when when I was having a son and they were like, I knew that it was malposition. I knew it was malposition. She was like, yeah, she's OP. She's OP like this. And she she was just like a, not a nice person. And that was the issue. The person that was in my space was never going to allow this baby 
to turn. Doesn't matter, come hell or high water. And that, the last minute, as like a last ditch attempt, she, I remember really clearly she leaned over me and she went, I'm going to try some manoeuvres to try and move the baby and complete and utter like, I'm going I'm to. I'm going to first. But it was like, I was repulsed at the concept of the idea of this woman touching me. And it was mm. like, you've done this. Like you've done this. And I, I talk about accountability over and over again. And so it's not saying all midwives do that. It's saying that person is accountable for what they did in this situation. She didn't know me and then thought that she was going to come and touch me after being horrible the whole time. It's just not going to happen, is it? When we look at how birth works, she was talking about, it's just failure to progress. It's failure to progress. I was like, no, it's failure to care. This is what this yeah. is. You know, it's failure to genuinely but, hold. But space. then how that but the how that presents is that you declined mm-hmm, her mm-hmm, help. Mm-hmm. And I was too tired and I couldn't do it. And so then we went to the hospital and this starts the cascade of events. So now it's, oh, we're getting decelerations. Well, of course you're getting decelerations. It's an OP baby. I have just had pethidine. Of course you're getting, you know, list, like pay attention. This is why this is happening, but we're not because we're so trapped in systems. So she's been at five centimeters for four hours. Well, 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 let's start Sinto. No, let's not start Sinto. But again, the series of events that's happening. I decline Sinto, you decline Sinto. Not you decided to try and be intuitive. We don't, we're not allowed to do that. We're not allowed to not follow steps because we're rogue. You know, Mm. it's like, nah. You can't have that rogue midwife. And then we've only got our, <laughs> ourselves to blame. Exactly. That goes wrong. And then we carry that. Um, I would be interested to hear how you guys encourage birthing people, women, to listen to their bodies. How do you facilitate that in the work you do? So for me, I it's something that I talk about at every appointment. Um. And if if they ask me a question, I tend to throw it back. Mm. I always remember yeah. doing that with me. So Rini, for listeners that don't know, Rini was my midwife when I had Cosmo. And I remember saying, oh, what, what do you think about that? And you were like, what do you think about it? <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> and it really is about that, that. What do you feel? It's not about mm. me. It's about you. So, if it, I can't think of an example, but I just. If you were talking about induction. Right. So, induction, someone will say, um, you know, we're getting. You're meant to talk about induction quite uh, about 36 weeks. And I will say to the woman, do you want to talk about induction? No, not really. Should we just talk about it when we get there? You know, so I'm not going to force you into an induction, but you do need to understand. It might be better if we talk about it now because then you can just forget about it. So but the other things where a really good one is about ECV. So mm-hmm. if somebody's got a breech baby and ECV is turning the baby to be head down, and some women will go, yeah, I really want to try that. And other women will go, oh, I don't like the idea of that. Now, to me, that is listening to her body. Because somebody who is saying, yeah, let's go for it. 
I, f I feel that, okay, the baby is okay to be turned. Whereas that one who's going, oh, I don't like the idea of that. I think that one is the baby that shouldn't be turned because there is some reason that that baby is breech. Mm. And they're the one who is going to go in and turn the baby. It's going to cause an issue and it's going to be an emergency cesarean and it's all going to go horribly wrong. So that is when I will say, listen to your body. Mm. What is your first gut instinct? Where do you feel the answer to this question is? And if you feel it in your gut and it's a, it says, no, don't do it. Mm -hmm. There was a lady and she was actually one of my very first clients and she totally, totally wanted a home birth. And we'd done all the planning, everything was all fine. She had this little room set out and it was it was lovely and I was so excited we were gonna have this home birth and oh it was just all wonderful. She had one surge and she would not want to go to hospital. And it was like, What? <laughs> all our plans. What? <laughs> why are you gonna do that? You know, why the it's, it's, you know, it's going to get a bit more than this. You know, you've only had one. How are you saying? So she went, no, it needs to be in hospital. I want to go to hospital. And it was like, okay, fine. I mean, <laughs> I will go to hospital. But <laughs> I'm staying yeah, here yeah, in the nice room. <laughs> went into hospital, that baby was breech. Mm. And we didn't know. So in, she, she knew that. And she was also supported with that. Yeah. This is what we yeah. like. We yeah. look at when, what, so, you know, what I found a lot is that we say to people, listen to your body, they speak and it is rejected. Yeah. Or it's shut yeah, down. No, you're wrong. Or they're gaslit. <laughs> yeah. Don't they're just, be like, silly. Like, don't be silly. Don't yeah. be silly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And it's yeah, like, no, don't listen to that bit. <laughs> your body's telling you that? Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's like, when you are, when you say something and you, you know the importance of the gut, and you're saying, okay, well, clearly she's made a decision and that's it. I'm going to trust her to trust herself. Mm -hmm. The outcome is very different. She'll feel empowered by the choice that she made because she's like, no, I did. I did what I needed mm. to do. My baby's fine. You're going to feel like, right, we supported this whole experience. There's no grief that happens within that, that can't yeah. be spoken through or, you know. And But when you do the opposite... And also because the the issue is that, that how people are willing to be held accountable. So it's like, they'll tell you not to listen to your body, so you won't do it. And they're not willing to say, well, we caused this to happen. Mm. So mm. then you're left with it. Yeah. And what happens there? But it's <laughs> but it's a very, it's difficult. Yeah, it's so it's really hard. difficult to navigate because it is such an abnormal thing for us to do. Um, you know, when you think about Cosmo's birth, Rini, and when we got to hospital, mm. you know, we were planning a home birth and got to hospital because I had a temperature and the I can't remember if it was an obstetrician or a midwife but she wasn't very nice and wanted to induce me yeah. do you remember and from the beginning I said I'm either having a home birth or I'm having a cesarean those are my two birth options that I'm not having my label augmented and when we got in she was like we can try this I said no I don't I don't want to do that I I will have a cesarean and she was like yeah but we should try this first and I remember Rini saying she said she wants a cesarean just like really mm. firmly, but calmly, not not confrontationally, but just listen. We listen. Mm. I'm telling you what I want and what is right mm. for me, 
and yet we're constantly feeling coerced. We're battling, we're battling. And how does how yeah. does how does that sense of battling then help us to to birth? Yeah. When the woman, similarly to you, Holly, the woman came in and she was like, "Well, we're going to augment," and I was like, "We're not going to augment." And she was like, <laughs> "No, we are." And when I said no, she walked out, she slammed the door. She was really angry. It was a doctor, oh. she was really angry. And I was like, what are you doing? Like, you absolute nutter. Mm. Like, what are you doing? And she comes back in and she goes, well, just so you know, we'll be, we'll be, we'll be augmenting in four hours. And I just remember mm. turning to my husband and being like, I'm not going to be pregnant in four hours. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know. But it's a clear sign though, isn't it? How the, the caregivers in these institutions don't have the support that they need to be able to care yeah. for women intuitively because it's very easy to blame and say, oh, she was a horrible midwife, whatever. You know, I don't think people are intuitively horrible or inherently horrible. I think they are unsupported to work mm. in holistic, intuitive ways and in person-centered ways. They are not supported to do that. And how that manifests is us having bad interactions. Yeah. What's your experience, Nancy, of, of um, helping people on that journey to listen to their bodies? It's a, it's a big part of what I do because I, I really think being aware of your own body and what things mean that you feel in your body is a, is a big step to managing your own health. And that's ultimately what, what I, I would like my patients to be doing. You know, I'm there to facilitate them yeah. to manage their health, not, not to manage their health for them. Oh, that's so empowering. That's so, how refreshing mm. is that to hear? I wish everyone you encountered was doing the same thing. I mean, there's, oh. there's a lot written about that in in you know in osteopathy in, in osteopathy texts, but it's it's a hard thing to do in practice because when you train, you're taught to fix things, and you're taught like well, someone comes to you and you just do this, and it fixes that, and they feel better. But actually, changing your mm. mindset so that um, when you're with a patient, it's their body that's doing the fixing, and you're the facilitator of that. It, that's that's quite a hard shift to make particularly if if um your history up to that point has been very much in in traditional or not traditional i want to say um conventional healthcare and you must find that in debrief silly yeah always always and i, I like people want a, a like a, a recipe yeah. for helping and like i say to them all the time i said it would be a disservice to me to tell you that you to you sorry to tell you that you're going to get over this or that you're going to feel incredible. You're going to walk out of here and feel like a new woman. Like, I wish I could tell you that, but mm. I'd be really bloody rich. Like <laughs> I wish I could tell you that I'm going to heal you, that I'm just that good. And and I always say this like, like a prerequisite, like don't come here with these expectations because the only mm. person that will end up disappointed is you. <laughs> you have to just know that you are looking to heal and we can work through how to facilitate that. It's not, and, and you know, so this is why like sometimes if I get like feedback and people are like, well, you know, I didn't feel that great. I'm like, oh, well, that's not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> that's not my fault because yeah. I never promised you that, you know, and, and I can't promise you that. It's not fair for me mm. to promise you. And it's ongoing work. It's always right? ongoing work. And it's, so this is where we get like continuity of care. It's ongoing. It isn't just, that's it. You see me once and now you're going to have the best experience ever. And that's it. It's like, you've got to show mm. up. You've got to invest in it, whether it's financially, emotionally, physically, whether it's with your time, like you really mm. have to be intentional about mm. what it might take and how your issues may be deeper than you ever thought. So you may have like, I don't know, 200 quid set aside for four sessions with an osteopath. It's like, oh, but what if you need eight? 
like you know it, it, it might just be continuous and you have to recognize that you know this is this this takes work and it sometimes does take the money and you have to prioritize where you put your money or how you spend your money if you've got money mm. and seek out ways in which to do it which aren't saying well it's private so I can't do it it's just more how can I do it because it's important mm. but that's exactly it isn't it I have clients who contact me about homeopathy and I'll send them the questionnaire and you know, it's, right, we'll make an appointment and they don't come back. Mm. And it's, a, it's not a quick fix because yeah. you are not that simple. You know, mm-hmm. you... Rini's, Rini's questionnaire is 500 pages long. <laughs> <laughs> it really isn't. Um, so, you know, it, it's you have to put something in and that I think is what yeah. we have done to people is that you expect a quick fix. Instant gratification. Exactly. And that is where, you know, these medicines, you know, just take a tablet for a headache and you'll be okay. Don't find out what the headache is from. Or trying to tell you. And things Uh, take time. So, okay. Yeah. If we think about action plans for people or how if someone's listening to this and they're thinking wow I'd never thought about it from that perspective or you know I wonder how I could start this train of thought or where I could take it is there any what if you could give one piece of advice to someone that would like to take a bit more responsibility for their health or their well-being or the connection between their mind and body Rini what would you advise someone to do (sighs) I think it really would be to get the support around you. You can't, to do it on your own is really, really difficult. If you've got somebody, I don't know, it could be your mum, it could be your partner, it could be somebody, and oh no, you know, Mm. you're not going to do it. What's the point? Mm. Then that is, it's it's not going to work. But if you've got someone, go on, you can do this. You're really worth it. You do that. Yeah. That, so I think I'd have to say support. Mm-hmm. And what about you, Nancy? I'd say following on from that, so everything that Rini said, I would totally agree. That following on for that, just don't, don't, don't give up on it. Like you'll meet people and they'll help yeah. you for a, for a part of your journey and you might need to meet someone else. And just because... Mm. and a person with a particular profession attached to the name couldn't help you doesn't mean that someone else in that profession wouldn't be able to help you as well so it's not mm. for me it's not about the profession it's often about the in, the individuals within it and how the they're person. working and yeah and you know the osteopathy is a huge field we're all different you know i've had the mm. same training as many yeah. other osteopaths but i work quite differently to some other osteopaths mm. who've had the same training as me and that's because it, there's a there's an element of of what I do that is about me as a person. Mm. And so so when yeah. someone says, "Oh, you know, can you recommend me an osteopath in this part of the country?" Because you know I want to come and see you, and I can't, then I will often give someone a few possibilities and say, "Well, you know, look at these people." But it's okay if you don't gel with someone to not go back because you actually need mm. someone who's yeah. got the the same idea of the journey that that you want to go on. Yeah, I think that's similar for all four of us. We're gonna there's a part of our characters that are in our in what we do that can't be mm. learnt mm. and can't be taught 
and why some people will gravitate towards us and others will be like, nah, that's not for me. You know, and yeah. it's, it's and that's okay. okay. Yeah. Like it's so okay. Mm. Like someone says, oh, do you, can you recommend someone for a debrief? I'm like, well, <laughs> instantly I'm like me. And then I'm like, <laughs> well, okay, then maybe not. Like, they already know that I exist and they're not coming to me. So maybe they need someone else. And I often think as well, if you don't gel, if someone doesn't gel with you, you probably wouldn't gel with them anyway. Yeah. So it's like, it's a, yeah. it's often a real mutual thing yeah. that it's like, we can't help. And we another. shouldn't, yeah, we shouldn't dilute our expertise no. to be palatable no, for no. everyone. Or charge less to be able to be yeah. accessible to everyone. Like that's mm. something I think is really important because you're both private. I mean, all four of us work privately, but it's like, you know, capitalism means that we need to get paid. Mm. Like it is a job. Yeah. We love what we do. We'd love to help everyone, but it's like, I can't do this for free. It costs what it costs. My education yeah. costs, you know. And it's valuable. I, I need, I need mm. it to be valued. And so it's about that, like, you know, if you, like if I had to give some advice, it would be if you feel like you need help, prioritize the funds, prioritize the time, see it, you know, value it for what it is. And if you can seek out ways, if there are charities that pay or if they've got a way, a cheaper option or whatever, fine. But don't have, don't think that, well, it's inaccessible to me because I just don't have that money and, and it it's out. done. You know, money shouldn't get in the way of of really seeking that that healing. Well, that has been... A wonderfully refreshing and joyful conversation. <laughs> we could have that kept going it. and going and going, I'm sure. <laughs> Five hours It could have been later. four hours. Yeah. <laughs> it could, couldn't it? Um, but thank you both so much for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, we'll put your details in the show notes so that people can find you if they would like to contact you and, and perhaps work with you. Um, but it has been really valuable to hear about your experiences and your expertise. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to leave a review please and make sure you follow us wherever you listen because we've got more insightful informative guests coming up and do jump on instagram to chat with us both all our details are in the episode show notes here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.